Acts 10 is one of the strangest accounts in all the Bible, and yet also one of the most important. Right here in uh, the, uh, the early years of the church, this is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is what we call the, the apostolic age or the ministry of the apostles and the, the, uh, the genesis, the beginning of the Christian church. So here we have in Acts 10, one of the apostles, Peter, a man we all know and love, Peter is doing something that appeared to be his normal routine. He's at a friend's house, a friend named Simon. Peter goes up on the roof around lunchtime to pray. And that doesn't seem out of the ordinary at all, the way Luke presents it to us. He goes up to pray, but it's close to lunchtime. And just like we, right, right toward the end of the sermon, just like the rest of us, Peter's starting to get a little hungry in the midst of his prayer time. But he's up on the roof and he enters into a trance, Luke tells us, and he sees a vision, a very strange vision indeed, of a sheet coming down out of heaven, lowered down by its four corners, a great big blanket, and within the midst of this sheet are all kinds of animals. Specifically, these are the kinds of animals that God forbade his people, the Jews, to eat back in the law, back in the book of Leviticus. And so that would include things like pigs and shellfish. There was a list of animals that the Jews were not allowed to eat because they were considered to be unclean, unholy, and therefore they were off limits. So I've heard uh, one person say, this is the first ever example of a pig in a blanket right here in Acts chapter 10. The pigs come down, and of course Peter, I'm sure, is very confused. And then he's more confused when the Lord issues a command. The Lord speaks to Peter and says, Peter kill and eat. Now, perhaps Peter is thinking, God's testing me here, and it's a test I'm going to pass. So Peter says, may it never be, Lord. My lips have never touched anything unclean and unholy. But then the voice responds, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And this happens three times. It's God's way of affirming, affirming, affirming something true. What God has cleansed, Peter, you no longer consider unholy. Now, it's not at all obvious at that moment what this vision means. And if we've never heard this story, it's not clear for us what this vision is all about. But then right away, it begins to unfold. A group of men show up at Peter's friend's house. They're looking for him. They're looking for Peter. Peter comes down, and the Lord says to Peter, go with them. Go without any misgivings, because I have sent them myself. Well, these men who come in search of Peter are Gentiles. And they are coming to say, Peter, would you please come and visit the home of a Gentile man named Cornelius? Now, that's an important note in the story. It's not a sidebar. The fact that these men are Gentiles is extremely important because these men were the kinds of people that the Jews considered unclean, unholy. We've already dealt with unclean, unholy animals, but now there's a much more important issue at stake here. These Gentiles, by and large, the Gentiles were the non-Jewish peoples of the world who were pagans. They were worshipers of false gods and idols. These people did not keep God's law, what we call the Old Testament. They were not circumcised meaning they were not set apart as God's people like Israel was. And so in their, under any normal circumstance, Peter would have declined such an invitation. He would not go to the home of a Gentile. He would not share a meal with them because these people were, 
from their perspective, they were unclean, unholy. And yet God has said, go at their invitation. And so Peter goes. And six of his friends who were Jewish Christians, like Peter, they go with him. Peter and his six companions. They go to Cornelius' house. And Peter stands among Cornelius' friends and family and proclaims the gospel to them. And he does it because it's become very clear to Peter at this point what God was communicating to him in that vision of the sheet with the animals. What God has cleansed, Peter, no longer consider unholy. The Lord is opening the door for the Gentiles to receive His grace and become His people. This is a promise God made Pointing ahead to the new covenant, God said, I will call those who are not my people, my people. So let's pick this up together now. Peter has a sense of what's going on as he preaches the gospel to them. In verse 42, Peter has declared to them the fact of Jesus' death and his resurrection. And then in Acts 10, 42, he says this, And he, the Lord, ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one, Jesus, who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers, that is the Jewish Christians, who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Now, it may not seem obvious at first glance in reading this scripture but this is the one, one of the most critical moments in all of human history right here. And it's critical especially for us, y'all, because here's the truth about us. We're Gentiles. I don't suspect that anybody here comes from Jewish heritage, which makes us non-Jewish. We are Gentiles, and here's, the, here's the, the reality behind the curtain for us, that like it or not, if we are Gentiles, then our heritage is pagan. Now, I'm not talking about your sweet mother and grandmother. They were very committed Methodists or whatever, I'm sure. But if you go back far enough, you get on Ancestry.com, you go back far enough, you and me both, we'll find that we come from a category of outsiders rather than insiders. We come from that which the Bible says is unclean and separate from God. And y'all, that may seem very depressing at first glance, But the truth of Acts 10 is what enlivens us now because God has made a way. God has opened the door. Whereas otherwise the Gentiles would be always on the outside and looking in, we come to Acts chapter 10 where God makes a declaration. What I have cleansed, God says, no longer consider unclean and unholy. Eventually in Acts 11, when Peter stands before a council of the Jewish Christians and explains himself for what we just read, They sit in awe, and they make one conclusion. God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance which leads to life. This is the reason we're here right now. 
because God has opened his grace up to the world. And so as Cornelius and his company here, they, they listen to the gospel, the Holy Spirit falls upon them, meaning they are now saved, and they begin to speak in tongues and glorify God. This was an unmistakable sign to the Jewish believers because it reflected the very same power of the Spirit that they had witnessed at Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit fell and they began to speak in tongues and it was an obvious, unmistakable work of God. The very same kind of thing is happening right here in Acts chapter 10 so that it would seal for them a, a new category in their mind. That salvation is found in Jesus Christ both for the Jew and also for the Greek. For the people of Jerusalem and Judea, yes, but also for every tongue and tribe and nation, Jesus Christ has come to be the Savior of the world. And so when we read Acts chapter 10, we should read it as a critical hinge, a moment where we outsiders became insiders, where we were once enemies of God, according to Romans 5, but we've now been made sons and daughters, adopted in by faith. Apart from Acts chapter 10, I don't, I don't say this to be uh, exaggerating or for the sake of hyperbole, I say it because I really believe it. None of us are in this room right now apart from Acts chapter 10 and God's movement in history to bring the nations to himself. Now I say all of that really to get us to our main focus, which is what happens at the very end of Acts chapter 10. Beginning in verse 47, how is Peter going to respond to this amazing, miraculous work of God this inclusion of the Gentiles, here it is. Peter answered, verse 47, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter's first order of business after seeing these people saved is for them to be baptized in the name of of Jesus Christ. And so that brings a question, certainly is our question for today. Why was baptism Peter's first and fundamental response to the salvation of these people? That's our point of focus. Well, we want to consider baptism today. And so what we're going to do with the time we have left, with the message that is left, is try to lay down a very basic and simple understanding of baptism we kind of take from the scriptures the best we can. We won't study every scripture that pertains to this topic. We wouldn't have time to do that. But to lay a foundation for us, and y'all, my hope is today that this will be so simple that it's almost silly how simple it is. Because our goal is that everybody from little ones to grown-ups would be able to see this with a measure of clarity together from God's word. So y'all, as we look into to some questions this morning, uh, I'll say up front, there are some Christian uh, traditions and denominations that view and practice baptism differently than we do. But as Baptists, we have a strong conviction as to what we believe the Bible teaches on this. And so I just want to very simply unpack some of this together in a way that we might ask a few essential questions and give, I hope, some clear answers, okay? So a couple of very basic questions when we approach this topic of baptism. And we'll draw from Acts 10 to help us find the answers. The first question, the most obvious one, is this. Who should be baptized? Who should be baptized? Well, Peter gives the answer, Acts chapter 10, what we just read in verse 47. Peter says, 
these who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. How can we withhold the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did? Now, a person receives the Holy Spirit in salvation. This is not a subsequent and secondary act that comes later. When a person is saved, that's when we receive the Spirit. Uh, the Apostle Paul speaks to this in very concrete terms in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says this, In Christ, you also, now he's speaking to Gentiles who've become Christians, you, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. You heard the gospel, you believed the gospel, you received or you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now what Paul's describing right there in terms of order is exactly what happens in Acts chapter 10. And we see an explanation in, in the next chapter, Acts 11, if you'd like to read on, where there is a preaching of the gospel from the mouth of Peter, there is a reception of the gospel. The Gentiles believed, and the Spirit fell upon them. They received the Spirit. And y'all, our conviction is this, that that is every Christian's experience. We hear the gospel, we believe in Jesus Christ, and we receive the Spirit. So if you were to read through the book of Acts as a whole, Acts features a lot of different people and situations and circumstances. There's all, I mean, they're happening in different places at different times with different people present, but a clear pattern shows up as we read through Acts that people believe the gospel and then they are baptized with absolute uh, regularity and credibility. This was the practice of the local church, the infant church as it grew. Now it's worth stopping here, okay, that we, we kind of recognize an important point of clarity. Baptism is not a saving activity in itself. And again, I don't want to take for granted that we understand that altogether. Baptism alone cannot save a person, nor does baptism make you more savable, as if it were a box that needed to be checked along the way to heaven, a rung of the ladder that needs to be scaled and climbed on the way to God. Baptism on its own does not save you, and it doesn't make you more savable. It doesn't get you closer to God in that case. Because if it did, and think about this, baptism would then be a work that we perform in order to boost our credibility before God. It would contribute to our salvation in that case. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is not good advice about what we do in order to make ourselves acceptable. The gospel is good news of what God has done. And so we declare it with absolute uh, faith and confidence and hope that we are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ apart from any works. And that's why we harp on the order here, not to be legalistic, but to say faith comes first for salvation, then baptism. Baptism is a reflection and signal of faith not a prerequisite, not something we do in order to become savable. We believe the gospel and then we're baptized. So that's the who. All who have received the Holy Spirit are baptized. The second question, again, super simple. How do we do it? How do we baptize? Now look back again, Acts 10, verse 47. Peter says, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized. 
Baptism requires water. I tell you, it's going to be deep stuff right here this morning. I warned you all, okay? Baptism requires water, okay? But more precisely, we practice baptism by immersion or submersion under the water as opposed to sprinkling on the head or some other mode, okay? That's what we do, and here's why. Y'all, for one, the word baptize or baptism, uh, as it's written in the original Greek language of the Scripture, the word itself means to immerse or to plunge. And whenever we see details about baptisms, in, in the book of Acts, for example, there's a place in Acts chapter 8 where Philip encounters an Ethiopian man and shares the gospel with him. And the Ethiopian man says, look, water, as they're going along, what prevents me from being baptized? And the scripture tells us that they go down into the water for baptism, and then they come up out of the water. That implies what the word means, which is immersion. But y'all, we're not, it's, it's not a semantics issue that convinces us here. There's a much deeper issue at stake. It's not just words and meanings. We plunge a person under the water as a picture of what baptism signifies, what it means. And this really bleeds into the third question. We've already looked at who can be baptized, those who receive the Spirit by faith. How do we baptize? We immerse in water. But y'all, such a critical question. Why do we do it? Why do we do it? And so the how... Immersion in water corresponds to the why. I want you to look at um, what the Apostle Paul says about this. Y'all, if, if, if baptism is for us some court, just religious ritual, a hurdle we climb, scriptures like this should reorient our, our minds and our hearts. Okay, This is not a religious ritual. Look at Romans chapter 6, what Paul says to Christians. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Paul gives a very similar perspective in Colossians 2. He says, you have been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. What Paul is communicating here is really almost too deep for human language to communicate. Let's do our best. Paul did well Let's try to, to honor his words here. Paul says, our baptism reflects the deepest and greatest reality in all the universe. That by faith, we now have union with Christ. Salvation is not a transaction that took place in heaven, but somehow doesn't touch nature. No, when we come to Jesus Christ, we don't just receive a sprinkling of blessings or forgiveness over us from afar, we receive Christ Himself. The Scripture now says that He abides in us, that His Spirit indwells us. We've been unified with Jesus. That's how close we are to Him. And Paul says it like this, we've been baptized, immersed into Christ Jesus, which means we are now defined by Him. 
and our belonging to Him. There's no longer Kyle who simply happens to believe in someone named Jesus. Now, Paul goes on in Galatians 2 to say, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. We are unified with Jesus. We're defined by Jesus. We belong to Jesus. And that's why Paul uses such stark language as he does here. We've been baptized into His death. And we've been buried with Him. What does that mean? What that means is that the old self, the person you once were, dead in your trespasses and sins, is no more. That person has died and has been buried You and I, by faith in Jesus Christ, we are no longer defined by and dominated by our sin. That person is no longer here. You are dead in your sin, Paul says, because you are now in Christ who died for your sin. Now let me say that again. That's simpler maybe than it sounds. You are dead to sin because you are in Christ who died for your sin. And even more, Paul doesn't stop there. He says, because you are in Christ, you have also been raised up with Him. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too are raised to walk in newness of life. If you are in Christ, immersed in Christ, baptized into Christ, then His death is now your death. And His life is your life. And so y'all, when a Christian is baptized into the water, we are celebrating a living picture of this great work of God. We are dead and buried with Christ, plunged beneath the surface, buried, put in the grave, as it were, and then we are gloriously raised up from the grave, raised from the dead to walk in newness of life, resurrection life given to us because of our union with Jesus who is alive. That's why we immerse into water. Now, there there are a lot of things we could say about baptism. Let me just give you one more because I think it's so helpful and wonderful. It's the idea not only of death, burial, and resurrection, but of washing and cleansing. And anybody who knows that they're a sinner knows we need to be washed and cleansed. Uh, my friend Austin will appreciate this. Back in the 1800s, there was the governor of Texas, a man named Sam Houston. You know who Sam Houston is? Austin, if you drive by Huntsville on the highway, you see his statue about 80 feet tall, it feels like. The statue of Sam. Sam was the governor of Texas, but he was a notorious drinker and a troublemaker. He's what we Texas folks would call a rascal, okay? Um, But in his later years, Sam became a Christian. He turned in faith to Jesus Christ, and he was baptized by his pastor in a little place in Texas called Rocky Creek. And the story goes that the pastor baptized Sam in the creek, and when he brought him up out of the water, he said, Sam, your sins have been washed away. And Sam Houston replied, then God help the fish. (laughs) 
It took y'all a little while, but you got it. Okay, I'm glad to hear that. All right, Texas humor, okay, doesn't, doesn't always translate. Um, yeah, now we recognize this. I hope it's been clear already. The act of baptism is not a literal washing away of sin. There's not, you don't leave your sins behind in the water. But Sam Houston understood something about himself that we all ought to understand and take to heart and reckon with. We are sinners in need of cleansing from our sin. The stain of sin is not easily washed out. It's something that we bear that is deep and permanent. There is nothing we can do about it unless Jesus should intervene, unless Jesus in His grace should wash us clean, should purify us in His mercy. And that's what we testify to in baptism, in the immersion of the water. We are representing ourselves now as those who are washed clean by the grace of Jesus. There's a great scripture on this. It's not about baptism per se, but in Titus chapter 3, listen to the gospel proclaimed. Paul says to Titus, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you have been washed clean. No stain remains on you or in you. Jesus Christ has paid it all. There's a, so much more we could, we could say on this subject. I'm going to stop here for the sake of hopefully some application. Y'all, the Lord, I trust, will give us more opportunities. If you ever have questions about this, uh, every scripture that speaks to this is worthy of our consideration. But just for today, I want to I help us, hopefully, to find some point of application and response. Let me give us some categories to consider. Two people in particular I have in mind here. Uh, there are some of us in this room or even watching online perhaps that you have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe even today you're coming to faith in Jesus through the hearing of the gospel. But you have not been baptized. And in that case, I want to appeal to you as strongly as I can to step into the waters of baptism soon. Not because there's any legalistic requirement that we as a church presume upon each other, but because we simply take what we believe the scriptural mandate very seriously. We think about Acts chapter 10. The very first thing Peter does in light of the salvation of these Gentiles, how can we refuse the water for these to be baptized? And he ordered it to be done that very day. The clarity and the urgency of Peter and the apostles in the book of Acts. We consider the significance of baptism as Paul paints the picture in Romans chapter 6, all that it means to be baptized into Christ, death, burial, and now resurrection, newness of life that we've been granted by His grace. And even beyond those things, we're right to call each other by faith to baptism because it's a very plain and clear command of the Scripture from the mouth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, the last thing Jesus says to His now apostles in Matthew 28, what we call the Great Commission, Jesus said to them, Go and make disciples of all the nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus commanded it to be functional, foundational, to salvation, to discipleship. And so I want to call you to this as an act of obedience and as an act of joy if you have trusted Christ but have not yet been baptized. And we'll give you an opportunity to follow up with us on that in a moment. There's a second category. There may be, and this is a little more complex perhaps, but there may be others who have a story more like this, that you were baptized already at some point in the past, but you have since trusted Christ and received the Holy Spirit. So perhaps you've become a Christian after your prior baptism. Now I mentioned this can be more complex and perhaps even confusing, but I want to make a request of you in that case, that you would enter into a sincere prayer and consideration of the scriptures that we've preached today and the many scriptures beyond that that we haven't touched. As to what the Bible says, I want to invite you to study the scriptures and to simply ask the Lord for clarity on this point. And I can say without any reservation that the pastors here at Harvest Church, our elders, would be thrilled to sit down with you and have this conversation, to speak with you about what the Bible says and how it correlates to your own life and experience, to talk about it and pray about it together. We would be, be overjoyed to have that opportunity with you. And I can give you this solemn promise from me and on behalf of the rest of us that we would never ever coerce you or guilt you into such an important uh, uh, act of, of obedience and identification with Jesus. It's never our idea to say, if you weren't baptized at Harvest Church, then it don't count. We would never say that. But I would invite you in this case to, to, to come to your own conclusion through a faithful study of the Scripture. And if we come to different distinctive conclusions, hey, that's great too. At least we know and we can stand on our conviction as to what the Bible preaches. But it could be, and I really mean this, for some of us this is our testimony that looking at what the Bible says about baptism, we recognize that things are out of order. That I need to be baptized after receiving the Holy Spirit and trusting in Christ. And in that case, I want to at least invite you into the conversation. Because y'all, for us, baptism is not a religious symbol. I mentioned this earlier, baptism is not a religious hurdle that we've got to get that hurdle crossed in order for you to be right with God. We would never treat it in such crass terms. Baptism is so much more than that, which is why we call each other to it. And y'all, as we conclude, I just want to say this, as a, as a matter of, of uh, simplicity, I hope, but also clarity, baptism is not just an individual activity that you and I kind of check as a part of our personal faith and testimony. Baptism is a hallmark of the people of God, His church as a whole. It is something we do individually, of course, but it's not meant to stay there or to be only something that rests on the individual person. Baptism is for the church. And so let me say this by way of, I hope, um, um, summary here. Baptism signifies our precious union with Jesus. Baptism testifies to our new life of faith. It shows forth our cleansing from sin. It carries out our obedience to Jesus' command. 
In baptism, we identify ourselves with Jesus, declaring to the church and the world that He alone is my Lord and my Savior, and my life is His. I no longer live, but Christ in me. And, as I mentioned a moment ago, baptism unites us together as God's people, His church. And that's why it's something we try always, always to do in the context of the church. In Ephesians 4, as we close, Paul calls the church to live in unity. Look at the basis for our unity. Why should we be unified? Here's what Paul says, Ephesians 4, 4. There is one body, that is the church, and one spirit. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, salvation. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One baptism does not mean you only get baptized once. It means that there is one baptism that unites us together in the same way that there is one Lord who saves us, one faith that brings us into saving relationship. One baptism, we are united together on the basis of these things. And so baptism is God's beautiful and very tangible way of marking off and uniting together those who belong to him. We are his beloved people, saved by his grace, washed clean by his mercy, baptized in the name of his son. And so I do want to give us an opportunity this morning to respond. Uh, here in a moment when we stand and, and pray and then sing, uh, we'll have pastors who stand at the back who are ready to, to receive you. If you'd like to step back and talk or pray, uh, I know that Aaron and Austin will be at the back of the room by the doors available for you to respond immediately. Uh, if you'd like to, to respond by simply filling out a card, you can Give us your name and number and write the word baptism and we'll know how to respond to you to begin that conversation. No strings attached, simply a conversation and a step forward. Uh, some of us this morning would fall into a, uh, I, I want to know more, I want to explore this. And I just want to remind you in that case that we'll have lunch for families afterward. Aaron, our, our discipleship pastor, will be available in the big small group room also after church for any adults who want to have this conversation. But here's what we do, my hope is, that whether we have a next step to make or not today, that we would celebrate this, that Jesus Christ has loved us and given himself for us so that we by faith would be united with him. We are not just blessed by him, but still far and separate. He has drawn himself near so much so that his very spirit indwells us. That's how much God has loved you. That's how close he's desired to come. And by faith and by the practice now, by the, the symbol of baptism, we are showing forth that we identify with him. We are not ashamed to call him our Lord, just as he is not ashamed to call us his brethren. What a wonderful gift we've been given, this beautiful picture of those now who belong to him by the free grace he's died to give us. Would you pray with me? Father, I do pray this morning for all of us that there would be a very healthy and gracious moment of conviction 
and conviction in, a, in, the, in the best possible sense of the word, Lord. That on, upon hearing your word, that upon seeing, Lord, the glory of your grace poured out on the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, and Peter's response not to withhold baptism from them, not to say, well, we'll just make sure this is checking all the boxes first. You know, they, he, he, Peter and his companions, Father, they saw the unmistakable work of your hand, of your spirit, and they responded with faith and joy and urgency. They responded, Lord, with the clearest and most beautiful picture of our identification with you. They baptized. And Father, I thank you that, that we have the, the privilege now of, of looking back on an account like this and recognizing its weight and its significance. Lord, I pray that, that you for us would, would do a, maybe one of a few things this morning. For some of us, Lord, that you would confirm to us and in us the significance of our baptism. We have been baptized as a believer and we have enjoyed the grace of seeing Lord, your, your, um, uh, your, your precious identification of us, Lord, that, that as those called by your name, Father, we were uh, immersed not only into Jesus Christ, but into the waters, Father, by your command, revealed to be your people of your choosing and your grace. Father, I pray if, if we can look back on that day, that we will look back upon it with, with absolute joy. But Father, for some of us, we, we need to, I pray, share the conviction of this being our, our next step. Lord, a step of obedience, a step of um, urgency and excitement. That Father, we would not withhold the waters. That we would not, I pray, uh, um, ignore the blessed command of our Savior if he's called us into this wonderful expression of faith. Father, let this be for us a, um, a word of both clarity and conviction, but also, Lord, a word of rejoicing that you would even think to set your people apart by faith through such a wonderful act, Lord, that we might be buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. Father, we give you thanks that you would be so gracious, that you'd be so loving to give us this tangible reminder and reality to show forth the awesome work, your saving work, through the death and resurrection of your Son. Father, let this be for us a day of rejoicing and perhaps even a day of opportunity to explore more deeply uh, what, what this all is and why we do it. And Lord, why it's so near to your own heart and to the heart of your church. We love you. We ask, Lord, your grace for everything today, both this topic and for all of life, Lord, as we call upon your name as your people identified with your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.